But it's good to see everybody today. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin. Uh, I'm the pastor here. And today we are starting a new series uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to look at Saul. Uh, so the series is going to be, it's a mini-series. We won't be doing it that long. Uh, but it's going to be called Saul, the First King of Israel. And today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15 which is actually a, a bit further into Saul's kingship. Uh, but to give you some backstory before we get there, uh, before Saul, who starts the monarchy in Israel's history uh, around 1000 BC, uh, from our best estimates, uh, was when Saul was the king, we had the period of the judges. And if you know the Old Testament, then you know there's a book called Judges, and so for a time, there were judges and prophets that would rule because Israel was a theocracy, meaning that their God, our God, was the king, the law of the land. Uh, but after some time, Samuel, who is the prophet and the judge at the time, the people rise up and they say, give us a king. We want to be like all the other nations around us who have a king. And so God essentially says... I'm going to give you a king, but you are going to regret it. And so the first king that gets anointed is King Saul. And what a story King Saul has to tell. We're going to be jumping in into the beginning of his kingship of, that we learn about in 1 Samuel. And Samuel, who is a prophet and also a judge of Israel, he gives Saul a mission from God. And he says, there's a people that have been attacking and who have been against the people of God since Israel has come out of the wilderness. They blocked the people of Israel. They do incredibly sinful things as a people, this city and this king. And so Samuel tells Saul, I want you to go to that city and you have to destroy that city. Everything in there, their cattle, everything must be destroyed. There should be nothing left when you are done. And so Saul raises an army. He goes to the city. God gives him victory. And we are going to read what happens after there. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. If you have your phones, you can follow along. We'll be uh, kind of frolicking through chapter 15 today uh, throughout the sermon. And if you don't, you can just listen in. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7 says this. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. And Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs. And all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul has victory and he looks at everything. He raises an army. He defeats the city. He looks at the spoils and he realizes, hey, some of this stuff is really good. And so I'm going to keep the good stuff. And I'm going to destroy all of the bad stuff. Uh, you know, nobody cares about the, the blemished things, the worthless things. We'll destroy those. We'll listen to God in that sense. But 
I'm going to keep the good things. We're going to keep them. And what I love about Saul and what we're going to be kind of reading through over the next few weeks is when we're reading the story, I really want us to see ourselves in Saul. And as we continue to read today, especially to see Samuel as the voice of God in our life. Because what Saul does is when he goes and he is going to obey God, and today we're talking about obedience. When he goes to obey God, he, he obeys him up to a certain point of when it becomes essentially non-convenient for him to obey. He gets all of the things together and he begins to destroy and he begins to listen to God, but he sees Agag and he lets them live and then he sees all the good stuff and he says, well, let's keep the good sheep, let's keep the good oxen, let's keep uh, all of the good spoils of war and we'll keep that, but all the worthless stuff I'm going to destroy. That's fine. Nobody likes this anyway. And what I see in this is I see us, that when God calls us to utterly destroy sin in our life, what do we do? Many times it goes like this. Yes, God, I will stop watching TV because I'm addicted, but just not my favorite show. <laughs> yes, God, I will fast today, but just let me eat a good meal at night before I go to sleep. Who wants to go to bed hangry anyway? Yes, God, I will... Stop being rude to my coworker as long as they don't push that button that you know they always like to push. Yes, God, I will stop drinking, but not on holidays because, well, it's a holiday and I'm with friends and family. Right? Our obedience to God many times comes with stipulations. I will clear out these easy things, the shows I really didn't like anyway. But once we get to the good stuff, that show that I've been watching for years, that I've been anticipating, once we get to the hard things where it's, man, I'm really sacrificing now, I think I will keep that. Because, well, God wants me to live my best life now. Anyway, right? That's what everybody says on Instagram and on Facebook. That's what the, if the memes say it, Lord, it is true. Right, God, you wouldn't, you wouldn't mean that. You wouldn't want me to give up this. I enjoy this. I want this. And so Saul does this thing, and then Samuel comes back to check on him. And if you don't know Samuel, the dude is, he's from Sunset Park in the 80s. That's, that's Samuel. Samuel comes to check on what Saul was told to do, and here is some of their interaction we're going to read verse 13 and 14. It says, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? This is great. <laughs> you know, Samuel comes and Saul says, Look at what I have done. I have obeyed the Lord. And then Samuel was like, <laughs> I could have sworn that I asked you to destroy everything. What, what is that sound? This uh, reminds me of a story with uh, 
When I was a kid, my mom would give me chores. And my chores for an extended period of my childhood was to dust and to polish the house. And so every Saturday morning before I was allowed to go out, I had to go through the house and dust and polish everything in the house. And I would go to my mom triumphantly every Saturday morning and say, Mom, I have performed all of the chores that you have given me. I have obeyed and I am ready to go outside. And my mom would say, okay. And, you know, we, my house had wood everywhere. So uh, there was a lot to dust and a lot to polish. And we used to have this mini grand piano in the house. And like any good house back then, there were a ton of pictures and vases and all that stuff on the piano. And so to properly dust and polish the piano, I had to take everything off of it, put it on the dining room table, dust it down, then polish it. And then I would get like those old shirts or whatever that we used to use as rags and then polish it down the piano after that. But as a kid, I didn't like to do that. That took too much time. And so what I would do is I would dust around the corners of everything and I would never take anything off and I would try to get like every scene nook and cranny. And so what my mom would do is she had every corner that she knew and she would just go to one of those corners and just go like this. Do you see that, Justin? <laughs> you have not dusted the house. Call me again when you are done. That's kind of what I see Samuel doing here. Where Saul goes, Samuel, I have done what you have called me to do. And Samuel is looking around like, my man, what are all the sheep and oxen doing around? If you have done what the Lord has called you to do. And so here's how Samuel responds in verse 13. I'm sorry. In verse 20. See, what happened was Saul tried to get one over on Samuel. He tried to, I, I got my thing done, but Samuel's not letting him have it. And this is how Samuel responds. He said, Saul says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Saul has some, Saul responds first before Samuel gets to his response to him. And he's trying to get one over on him. And, 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 and this was me saying, but, but mom, did you check here? I dusted this, this table. I, I polished. Look how sparkly this one is. I did what you asked me to do. Now, let me go out. You know, sure, I didn't take off the, you know, the, the picture frame and, and get all the way back there. But it's fine. Nobody sees back there. You know, no, nobody cares about that. So Saul, he has his excuse laid out. I have obeyed the Lord. I have gone on the mission. I even brought the king. But the people, the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction. Why did they do it? He says, to sacrifice to the Lord. This is good. This is such a juicy passage right here. See, Saul's defense to Samuel is blame. 
But the people wanted it. And we're using it for sacrifices for the Lord. See, God comes and is like, hey, uh, I thought I told you to insert whatever it is. Stop watching this. Stop drinking this. Stop doing this. Stop being mean like this. I thought I told you to do that. And then what do we come back? We come back to God and we say, but my friends wanted to come over and watch a show. I'm not going to deny my friends to come watch a show. We prayed before we started, God. But my friends invited me out to eat. It's okay, I was fasting, but how am I going to say no? They, they were paying for it. Anybody ever fast and it's like free pizza day at work that day? Right, Adam, the very first man, when God came and said, why have you sinned? He said, but it's the woman you gave me, God. Right, this is human nature to the very first man. That we start blaming others, but then we start wrapping it in godly speak. See, what Saul did was he saw the good stuff, he disobeyed, got caught, and then he tried to use something godly as an excuse. He said, but we were going to sacrifice of the spoils to the Lord. That's what we wanted to do. That's why we didn't kill everything. Maybe God told you not to be with somebody and you're all like, yeah, I know you said that, but we're putting Christ at the center. I know we're not supposed to be together, God, that you didn't want me to, but we're building a great triangular relationship right now. And you are right there on top. Isn't this good for my walk with you? Isn't this good for my spirituality? Isn't this good for my obedience? Don't you want me, God, to be praying more with other people? Isn't that what your scripture says? I remember you get a lot of kids' stories because that's how we act when we're disobedient to our Father God. My mom, when I used to go sleep over uh, with my friends, my mom would always tell me, because she knew what it was like when I would sleep over my friends, do not stay up all night, all right? Pulling all-nighters is a childhood pastime. Last time I tried to do it, I swore I would never do it again in my adult life. Um, but as a kid, I would get away with this. And so I remember one, home, one time I came home and my, my mom said, you looked like you stayed up all night. I said, yeah, mom, I did. We had a great prayer meeting last night. We were praying for hours. It was amazing. See, what happens is when we are disobedient, we will twist language and use excuses to try to get away with it and to squirm our way out of it. And this is what Paul is doing, what Saul is doing here. It's okay if I'm mean to my family because I take them to church on Sunday. That excuses how I am during the week, God. Don't you know that? <laughs> Come on. We worship together. I mean, I get out of bed and drive them to church, so who cares if I scream at them a bunch during the week? Right? Who, who cares if I participate in crude jokes at work? They know I'm a Christian and I preach the gospel when they ask. It's okay if I 
participate in some of the dirty stuff that they do? Yeah, you told me not to stay up late, but I was praying with my friends. See, we will use godly things as an escape from living a godly life sometimes. The devil did the same thing when he tempted Jesus. Jesus was supposed to go on a 40-day fast in the wilderness. And what did the devil do? He came to tempt Jesus, and he tempted him with what? Scripture. He took the scripture, he twisted it, and he tried to use it in a way that would get Jesus to disobey the Father. And even though what some of what the devil was saying was correct, in reality, it would cause Jesus to live in disobedience. And so Jesus turns him away. See, disobedience always has an excuse wrapped around it. I'm going to say that again. Disobedience always has an excuse wrapped around it. We justify our sin to feel better about ourselves. But just because we feel better about ourselves doesn't mean that it has been made right. And that's the difference that we have to learn. Sometimes we we understand how to make it right in our head. We've crafted a God of our own image, of our own excuses, who always says, it's just okay, Justin. It's okay that you did that. Don't worry about it. Our God has become a God of giving in to our excuses of understanding all of the sin and what we have done is we have taken godly things and we've used it to justify our sinful life. But the difference is that Jesus' justification saves us. My personal justification does not. So even though I may feel better about something that I did because I have justified it in my mind does not mean that it is right. And many times when we have come to an excuse that we are satisfied with for living the way that we live in disobedience to God, we continue to think it's fine to live that way because we have come to a place of justification in our own head. But our head does not save us. Our personality does not save us. Our own character does not save us. Our own life does not save us. Our excuses, our justification of ourselves will never be enough to save us. Personal justification will never lead to salvation. Personal justification will never lead to salvation. It will never be life-giving. See, whenever we think we can change the directives of God to make it easier on ourselves, here is the response that God will have. And this is what Samuel says to Saul after Saul lays out his excuse of how, of course, he has obeyed God. This is Samuel's response. And this is God's response to us. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
So whatever you are doing, whatever excuse that you have in your mind that made it okay to disobey God, the word of the Lord to Saul, the word of the Lord to us is that to obey God is better than whatever your excuse was. Whatever godly excuse you had was. He says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. See, the truth is, God doesn't want your extra prayer time with your girlfriend if he told you not to have that girlfriend in the first place. He wants you to obey. God is not asking for your mileage on your way to and from church every Sunday at the end of the year. He's asking for your obedience. God doesn't want your tithe from your money that you got unjustly or greedily or from stepping on somebody at work to get that promotion. God wants your obedience. Samuel says something here that's important. He says, rebellion is the same as witchcraft. When we disobey God, we are doing the work of Satan. We are allowing witchcraft to settle in our hearts. In God's eyes, if he is giving you a command and you only half do it to the point of where it becomes hard, that's just as bad as holding a seance at your house after church on a Sunday with your pew friends. I've gone to church, I'm good, now let's go home and speak to the dead. Let's go on and do some tarot card readings. Let me read your palms when we get out of here. God is saying that is just as bad. That is the same thing as being disobedient to something I have told you to do. Many of us in the church, we look at witchcraft and we think, man, I would never participate in that. You know, that's, that's talking with demons. That, that is allowing the satanic into my life. That is giving room to the enemy in a very physical, very present way. But what we fail to realize is disobedience is doing the same exact thing in our life. That we are giving room to the enemy in a very physical way. We are giving room to Satan and his demons in our life. We are inviting them into our walk in life, into our walk with God. And we are saying, be present with me. In my life, when we practice disobedience, we are practicing witchcraft. Saul says to Samuel in verse 24, he says, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized his, the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And has given it to a neighbor of yours 
who is better than you. Saul hears the verdict. He hears what Samuel says. And his excuses stop. After he hears this verdict, he realizes the gravity and he begins to repent. But here's the truth. This is the hard truth, but still a truth. Trying to escape the consequences of your disobedience is not repentance. It's regret. God is not fooled. If we only say sorry when we are found out, then we are not truly sorry. We are regretful. We want God's blessing on our life. We want God's blessing on our kingdoms. We want it in our family. We want it in our church. We want it in our community. But we want it on our own terms. God, I will do it my way. I will obey what I see fit in my eyes. But when we want things on our own terms and not God's terms, that is disobedience in the making. Saul would have had a kingdom that lasted for ages. Instead, his kingship was torn from him. Because his disobedience led to a verdict. And that verdict led to his regret, not to true repentance. Because as we're going to... Learn more about Saul. You think that this is the end of Saul's life. Really, it's just the beginning of what we learn about Saul in Scripture. And you think, but, well, that was mean if he really repented. Well, if you learn about the life of Saul, as we're going to learn, this was not true repentance. He did not turn to God. See, so many times we have fooled ourselves into saying, I repent, I repent, I repent. But really what we are experiencing is regret after regret after regret because we regret the death that it gave us in our life. We regret the outcomes of, of the decisions that we made. We regret the consequences of the things that we have done. But we have never stopped fully in the tracks of our sin and repented and turned away from it while we were in the midst of it before someone found out about it. Before God confronted us with it. Before somebody said you need to stop doing that. See, I know in my life how sincere my own heart is and how sincere my repentance is if I tell God this, I'll, start, I'll stop doing it after this one last time. Let me finish this series. Let me, let me just be mean this last time. Let me just get this last dollar. Let me do this one last thing and, and then I will stop. That is not repentance. Repentance is, I have $100,000 on the line, and I'm going to lose it if I repent right now. But woe be to me to gain $100,000 but lose my soul. I would rather lose that $100,000 and be right with God than have $100,000 in my bank account and be disobedient to him. A hundred grand may not be on the line. 
But the gravity of what we're doing is the same. And maybe that extra time that we're hateful towards somebody, maybe we don't even speak it. But the evil desire has formed in our mind and we let it fester in our heart. We have already committed the sin of murder. God, let me finish this thought before I repent. Let me kill them a hundred times over before I, I stop this thought in its tracks. Let me watch porn one more time and say farewell. No, repentance is stopping right where you are, no matter what the fleshly consequences of that and saying, God, far be it from me. Far be it from me to have personal gratification at the expense of eternal satisfaction with you. Romans 7 talks about this very thing. Paul says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. How many times have you said, today will be the day that I stop? How many times have you thought it would be nice for me to never go back to that? But every time I start to do good, every time I have tried to fast, somebody has given me that food. Every time I have decided to walk away from that, it just gets put back in my face. Every time I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. If you've gone through that enough in your life, then you understand the words of Paul in this passage where he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? If you are recognizing your excuses today, it is leading you to live a regretful life, not a repentive one. The answer is Jesus. If you want to repent and not just live this life of regret, the answer is Jesus. If you realize you have been wrapping your disobedience in godly talk, the answer is Jesus. Paul understood. He saw what we go through. And if you've been at a place, you understand this too. That you realize in these moments how sinful I am, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? I have tried. My excuses will not justify me. My willpower will not change my character. My sins are not washed away by my personal righteousness. Who will deliver me? 
And then speaking from experience, Paul says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Some of you have been living in disobedience to what God has called you to do, and he is coming to rip your kingdom from you. Will you turn to Jesus today for salvation? Or will you go down to Sheol and regret later? Don't take his patience for acceptance. I've done that many times. I've taken God's patience and his grace at me for the acceptance of the lifestyle that I live. And I've learned the hard way. His patience does not mean he's putting his stamp of approval on it. It's his way of being God and saying, come, come, come to me. Before the decree is said that your kingdom is being ripped from him. Is being ripped from you. Come, come, come to me. That heavy burden, that weariness we spoke of before, that is the weight of disobedience. That is the weariness of sin in your life. And Jesus says, all that come, I will give you rest. I will give you joy. I will give you peace. I will give you satisfaction. So that the old is dead and that the new comes to life. One that is not driven by the law of sin and death, but is alive to Christ and his glorious kingdom with him. Can you stand with me?